Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Earlier this season, I interviewed Bradley Scott about the impact of sales tax changes on small businesses in a post-Wayfair world. One of the things that we talked about in that episode is how the COVID-19 pandemic has further complicated matters. There's a lot of economic uncertainty, and we're seeing shifts in the way that consumers are reacting to those changes in terms of how they're spending. But that also is creating some opportunities for states to recover some lost tax dollars that they may also be experiencing. There may be a potential for increased enforcement and changes to taxability laws that might trigger new obligations for sellers. So the economic uncertainty is also kind of creating a new level of seller and retailer uncertainty. And to talk about that, I've asked Scott Peterson to come and give us some insight. Scott is Avalara's Vice President of U.S. Tax Policy and Government Relations. He has over 30 years' experience working in tax policy and legislation, having been the first Executive Director of the Streamlined Sales Tax Governing Board and the former COO of an organization devoted to making sales tax simpler and more uniform for the benefit of businesses. Scott also served 10 years as the director of the South Dakota Sales Tax Division and 12 years providing legal research and writing for the South Dakota legislature. So, Scott, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I wanted to kind of chat about how a lot of what's going on with respect to the pandemic and these shifts that we're seeing, both, again, in in terms of consumer behavior and the economies of, of various states how this might impact what we're seeing in terms of state budgeting and enforcement and maybe future enforcement activities. So can you kind of give us a window into what you think all of this is going to mean in the short term? And then we'll kind of maybe talk about what it could mean long term. Yeah, certainly. So in the short term, businesses that have the capacity to change have been changing. Mm -hmm. It's frankly depressing to, you know, to drive by our favorite restaurants and see them not open. Right. But those who have the capacity, those who who have something that they can sell in a way that's not the way they normally sold it, Mm -hmm. those folks are all changing and they're all making a, an investment in a way of earning some income to the extent that it's physically possible. Right. We're seeing some of that with some of the retailers who were you know, there's always been online retailers, but there have been some stores that I think we all sort of thought would stay brick and mortar, maybe like a pure one that we're seeing shift to more of an online model. So I think that's sort of one of the ways, like you, when you talk about driving by the restaurant and seeing it close, um, you know, restaurants may be more slow to adapt because it's kind of hard um, to recreate that experience in your home. But these stores that we've seen where we used to go in and browse Again, not your Amazon type store, but your your store that you kind of liked going in, sitting in the chair and, and looking at the knickknacks. They have changed those experiences, I think, to make them more online. So I think we're going to see a push towards more online services and sales permanently. Do you, do you see that happening? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, what we're experiencing today is is an acceleration of what was going on prior to the pandemic. Right. 
the number of stores that have you know gone bankrupt this year were stores that have struggled for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And you know, and some of that struggle was their inability to make this transition from the store experience to the online experience. Right. Um, and you know, clearly, the only way that you can survive today is to have that an online experience that resembles the store experience to the extent that it's you know physically possible. That's certainly going to continue. And we see that in you know in some of the the conversations that we have with businesses today. We're seeing folks who normally just run stores uh, who are saying, okay, I need to have a website. I need to be able to ship things. I need to have a, you know, distribution process and I need to be able to collect sales tax because that darn Wayfair decision that I've heard about mm-hmm. is put me in a situation where I have to know more than I've ever had to know before. Right. And how is, can you maybe tell our listeners how that decision, Brad and I talked to a little bit about this, but how did Wayfair impact for example, smaller businesses that were online? Because I think we all sort of saw this coming for a while for, you know, the Amazons of the world. But for the smaller businesses, what was sort of the impact of Wayfair before the pandemic? No, most of the, well, we did a study because we were a little unsure ourselves. And so between December and March of, of last, December of last year and March of this year, we surveyed a number of businesses, uh, 750 to be exact, trying to gauge the actual depth of knowledge of the phrase South Dakota versus Wayfair. Okay. And what we learned was that there were an awful lot of folks that had never heard of it at all. And a lot of people that had heard of it weren't all that sure what it meant. And where we saw the least amount of understanding, where there was a little bit of understanding, the least amount of action was in the very small businesses, the especially small businesses and small businesses. Do you think that the um, that that is because of small businesses not being privy to the same kinds of information in the same ways that bigger businesses were learning about it? Or do you think it was a little bit of head in the sand, like choosing not to be aware of it? You know, I think it's a lot of it was not having the resources that a big business would have. Okay. You know, big businesses have to have some form of an accounting staff. Mm-hmm. And they may not have a tax department, but they've got an accounting team. Right. And the accounting team has to have their CPE. And you can't, it's been vir- virtually impossible to do, to do CPE or even CLE in the last two years and not have somebody talk to you about Wayfair. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, I mean, that the folks that have had that capacity have a much greater, at least, awareness of the concept. They may not have the depth of understanding that AT&T has about it, but they certainly have an, an understanding and or an awareness, and they know that they might need to have, a, you know, some sort of depth of understanding. The very small businesses, you know, they hear about this in odd ways, or, you know, the worst, worst case is that, you know, they see a headline in the newspaper that says, internet subject to sales tax, and they think, oh, well, I don't sell on the internet. I, I've got a catalog. Mm-hmm. Or I have salespeople, and they, and because I've had those conversations with businesses who said, "Well, this can't apply to me because I don't have, I'm not selling on the internet. I've got a website, sure, but the only way you can buy from me is to call me on that website, and then I'll, you know, I'll sell it to you. But we're going to do it on the phone. It's not on the internet. And so there's a lot of folks because of how they did business just don't have the the kind of access to tax information, you know, that big businesses do, medium sized businesses, and, and certainly you and I. 
Well, one of the things that Bradley and I talked about, and is something that you and I have talked about before too, is the uh, the variations in the thresholds from state to state and how that creates confusion. Because if you assume, and I think a lot of people do, so so let's say that you live in a state where there's a, a decent threshold. Let's say it's 500,000 sales threshold before you're responsible. You might assume that every state has that same level of threshold when we know that's not true. I mean, some of them are dollar one. So when you when we talk about resources and education, even if folks know that they may be subject to sales tax, I think there's some confusion about whether or not they're doing enough business in those states to actually be subject to sales tax. And I think especially for small businesses, because if you have a couple of sales in Kansas or California, you don't think that you're on the same playing field as someone like an Amazon. You're absolutely right. These thresholds are oddly and strangely confusing. And, that, and that's why there's at least three different groups that are out there trying to create some sort of a, you know, a documentation to allow people to, you know, to have a quick understanding of what the thresholds are. People come to us because they want to do their sales tax compliance differently than they did in the past. They want to automate it. They want to outsource it. And to the, those that they had outsourced their sales tax compliance to us, we were looking at their sales and, and where they were collecting tax. We were thinking, why hasn't Jane called us and said, I need to start collecting sales tax in Wyoming? Because according to our records, Jane exceeded the economic nexus threshold in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And Jane never gave a second thought to it. Right. Because she, she had somebody doing this for her. So we had to go in and we, we, we created a heat map that goes on everybody's dash, every one of our customers' dashboards that tells them, you know, in, 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 in colors where they need to call us, when they need to call us. Because, um, yeah, there's, there's so many folks out there. Because, you know, in theory, when California and Texas picked $500,000, they were doing so because they thought there was some sort of a rational distinction between their size and the size of South Dakota. Mm-hmm. The reality is that if you're a Texas retailer, you think everybody has $500,000. And it's oddly enough that people that are probably safe in this whole thing are Kansas retailers. Right. Because they know it's zero. Right, right. And that was one of the things that we had talked about um, in that prior interview is that, you know, I I think that those are, and I don't want to say traps because that feels like it feels unfair to say, because I don't, I don't want to give the impression that I think, you know, Kansas was doing it on purpose to make small business owners, you know, uncomfortable and non-compliant. But I do think that there are um, these pitfalls for small businesses from state to state that maybe they don't understand exist because when we talk about things like internet sales tax, again, we we sort of talk about it amongst the big names. I mean, even Wayfair, like <laughs> Wayfair is a big company. That's the name of the uh, the the Supreme Court case. But, you know, the, the Wayfarers of the world, the Amazons of the world, these are big companies. And when you're comparing yourself as a little fish to these big companies, you feel like the sales tax burden shouldn't be the same. Absolutely. And I, I don't like to use the word trap either, but in pitfall is a much better wing. I mean, Kansas is a great example, uh, example of a really unpleasant pitfall. They don't have a marketplace facilitator statute. And so if you're if you're a seller who's small or large, who's, you know, selling on marketplaces mm-hmm. and you have other ways of making sales. But even if you're just selling on marketplaces, 
without that marketplace facilitator law in Kansas, they're not collecting. And so we have customers, we have customers who, for the most part, have their sales tax collected by, you know, the marketplaces that use us to collect in Kansas because they have no way of, it's such an aberration, you know, because their new normal is the marketplace collects. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a, a new normal that's normal everywhere, except one place. Right. So for folks who are listening who don't know what the marketplace facilitator law is, can you briefly explain what that means? Yeah, thank you. The states took advantage of the Wayfair decision. When I worked for the South Dakota Department of Revenue, we moved our, our motor fuel tax compliance from the gas station to the distributor, and we called it moving it to the rack. So we moved okay. tax compliance on motor fuel to the rack. And that's kind of what the states are doing with the marketplace facilitator law. They've taken their sales tax law, you know, with the help of the Wayfair decision mm-hmm. and looked at the folks who facilitate other people's sales and said, you're a seller. I don't care if you're not selling anything of your own. The fact that you have facilitated the ability for somebody else to sell a product, which includes marketing, may include distribution, but certainly includes the transaction itself and the collection of the money. Mm-hmm. Because you do that, we're gonna just we're just gonna you know by fiat deem you to be a seller. So when they do that, they also relieve sellers from the liability for the sales tax for the sales that are processed through a facilitator. So if you're selling on one of the big, big or small marketplace facilitators in this country, where that state has a law that marketplace is liable for the collection of the sales tax and the marketplace seller is off the hook. Kansas is the one state that has a Wayfair economic nexus statute that makes sellers collect sales tax, but they don't have the marketplace facilitator law. So the marketplace facilitators are not legally required to collect in Kansas, and most of them aren't. Mm -hmm. The sellers have an obligation to collect, and it just so happens to be in a state where they don't have an economic threshold at all. So in South Dakota, which has a $100,000 economic nexus threshold for sellers, a seller who normally sells on marketplaces and has the market and relies on the marketplace would have to exceed $100,000 in sales in South Dakota before they'd have this obligation. In Kansas, it's the first sale you have the obligation. Right. We talked about this uh, after Wayfair, a lot of uh text geeks um, talked about the fact that the language in Wayfair in the opinion seems to imply that there will be a Wayfair too, meaning that we think that they're going to re-examine the case and kind of take a second look at some of these questions that have been raised in this post-Wayfair world. Do you see this? I'm going to use the word inequity, and I don't know that that's a fair word, but that's what I'm going to use. This inequity between the states as being something that you think is going to become a legal challenge? Uh, I, not the thresholds, mm-hmm. because I think you know, when South Dakota adopted their $100,000 threshold, they, in their brief to the court, said, we think this equals a $30 million company nationwide. Okay. So, you know, it, it would be legitimate if you follow that, you know, from an economic perspective, it would be legitimate for the courts to say, okay, well, that makes sense. Then, you know, it would be national, rational that California would be, have a higher rate and Texas would have a higher rate. Zero rate is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. So if there is going to be a, a you know, a, a challenge on the threshold, it'll be in Kansas and it'll be whether or not 
one sale meets the due process nexus requirement that Kansas is relying on. Right. So there's the potential for the, you know, a lawsuit there. Due process is, I think, what the court's looking for these days. I think there's a potential for lawsuits in states like Illinois and Tennessee where remote sellers have to collect destination sales tax, in-state sellers collect origin sales tax. Right. And so if you're, you know, you're, you may not have much of a sales tax difference. Certainly in Tennessee, you might not, but you certainly have an administrative difference. Having to collect all 99 county sales taxes in Tennessee is a much different burden than having to collect one sales tax, one county sales tax rate in Tennessee. And even though the tax rate may be exactly the same or you just, you know, vary by a quarter or, or a half a percent. Well, I think that's what people don't understand when we talk about sales taxes. It's not just, are you selling in Pennsylvania? It's, are you selling in Philadelphia County or are you selling in Chester County? And in some places, there's also like in Louisiana, it could even be more drilled down. So the compliance burden for businesses isn't just knowing those rates in 50 states. It's knowing it in which states also charge separate uh, sales tax rates in the, the counties and the jurisdictions in some, in some places. I mean, that's sort of what we were uh, referring to a few moments ago. It's, it's, not, it's not just looking at a, a list of 50 rates. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's a lot more than 50 rates. And, you know, even though Alabama and Louisiana, no, Alabama and Texas have adopted this, you know, this uniform statewide local equivalent. That's just two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the country, you know, they might have state administered sales taxes like Wyoming and South Dakota and Ohio, but there is still all these different rates you have to do. And, it, and it's a lot of different. I mean, the, the difference between Collecting local sales taxes in Wyoming versus South Dakota is night and day. Wyoming is county-based. Mm-hmm. Nine digit zip codes work almost every time in Wyoming because it's a rare nine-digit nine zip code that crosses the county line in Wyoming. South Dakota, all city-based. Five-digit zip codes work almost never. You could, you could, you could almost never rely on a five-digit Actually, I think there's two five-digit zip codes in South Dakota that are wholly inside of a city. Mm-hmm. Every other five-digit zip code in South Dakota expands outside in outside the city limits, and a lot of nine-digit zip codes cross the city lines. So, the work that's involved in managing local taxes is really quite enormous. Right. But it can be a lot different because honestly, Wyoming isn't that complicated, and right next door, South Dakota is crazy complicated. Well, and complicating it further, um, we talked about uh, a little bit earlier about how people are changing the way they do business um, in the pandemic, but some of the states are considering changing the way that they impose the tax too, right? Like those thresholds could be moving. It's not a matter of, okay, they're all set. We just have to figure it out. Now it could be that the thresholds are changing and perhaps the incentives for enforcement are changing. Yeah, that's worrisome. Two things. One, Kansas is sued and the court agrees that one sale is the right number. If that happens, then there's a race at the bottom. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is that folks decide they're going to take the risk. State policymakers are going to take their risk, and they figure out that there's still money that's not being collected because their threshold is $250,000 or whatever it is, uh, but it's not zero. Mm-hmm. And so the pandemic is creating, you know, uh, budget disasters everywhere right. that they're going to have to resolve. And, you know, Congress might bail them out, but if they don't, then these folks are going to have to figure out how to cut their budgets and bring in more money. Well, the interesting thing about sales tax as a form of revenue, especially as it applies to sales inside the state that maybe have originated somewhere else or vice versa, is that it feels like a way to raise taxes without actually raising taxes on your people. So politically, it's a little easier. Yeah, that's always... (laughs) No one ever thinks that they're raising, they're imposing a collection obligation on their own sellers when they make somebody else collect. Even mm-hmm. though that's exactly what their neighboring states are thinking. Oh, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna get those North North Dakota retailers to collect the Minnesota sales tax by doing this, and they it never occurs to them. Well, then North Dakota's thinking the same thing about Minnesota retailers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's a it's a lot like um, extraction taxes, although in 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 most cases the states that impose taxes on things that are extracted from the soil know that tax is likely being transported outside the state and they're exporting their tax burden. Right. Yeah, we know we know a little something about that in Pennsylvania these days. Um, <laughs> how do you think that states are going to react to these budget holes? And when we talk about potentially enforce uh, increased enforcement, what does that look like? Increased enforcement is going to look a very aggressive hunt for non-collecting sellers. Uh, we're going to start seeing states, and we've already started to see it, and states are talking about how they've accelerated the, the data mining that they're doing, looking for people who are making sales into the state that aren't collecting the sales tax. And how do and they do that? Oh, they do it in a couple different ways. Um, there, there are companies that sell data to states. And these type of folks have, they, they search the web. They used to search, you know, the yellow pages and the white pages. And, you know, before the web, they, they, they created this list by going through the yellow pages. Mm-hmm. And now they use the web. They, they, you know, they search the web for folks that are selling online. And they take that data and they try to apply some economic analysis to the business. They assume that they sell everywhere. And then to try to apply some economic analysis to the type of business that they're in to see what they sell and where they presume they sell everywhere. That's then remarkable. They, and they give these lists to the states. And the states, honestly, don't really have to do much analysis. About the only analysis they have to do is determine whether or not that person's already licensed. And if they aren't already licensed, then they just send them a letter. And, you know, it might get ignored, but it is that you know that first shot across the bow of my next letter might actually be a knock at the door okay and then they have their own resources you know one of the things that states do when they conduct an audit a sales and use tax audit is as they're looking for you know the sales and use tax audit is mostly use tax historically and as they're looking at the purchase invoices that businesses have they're a, looking for sales tax that wasn't collected, but they're B, collecting the data from that seller. And so states have these big lists that, of sellers 
who from that they've gathered from all their audits. And so they're starting to take those lists of sellers and say, I wonder if they're still selling in my state. And so they're doing the same process. Every audit, obviously every audit they're doing today and into the future, that really becomes a, a, an, an exploration for future sales tax compliance. Because if I audit you today and I see that you bought something from somebody and they didn't charge the tax, well, I just need to figure out whether or not you've exceeded my economic nexus threshold. I don't even have to do that. I just send you a letter and say, I know you made a sale to XYZ company in my state, and I've got 3,500 other XY, other companies like XYZ. I'm going to assume you made the same sale to them, too. And I want you to prove to me that you didn't. Right. And how does that business do that? <laughs> Most of them don't. Most of them just say, well, that's not, I can't say most. A lot of businesses will have the records. You know, they could legitimately say, wait a minute, my CPA advised me on what your economic nexus threshold is. And you may have 3,500 companies like XYZ Company, but I only sell the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I sell $35,000 a year to your state. So thank you. When I get to 100,000, I'll call you. Don't have to call me back. <laughs> and that's really what they have to do. So. A business that's selling across state boundaries, regardless of how they make that sale, needs to be able to track their sales by state. Right. You know, so they need to figure out where their customers are and they need to be able to sort them by state so they can they can get at these thresholds. And then they, then they need to understand what the threshold is. The threshold gross sales is a threshold gross sales less resa- retail or uh, resale. Is it taxable sales? You know, it's, it's hard to do this without professional help. It really is. Oh, sure. I actually have represented a client in a sales tax audit that was a brick and mortar client. And um, and it was hard then because the state came with an expectation of what it felt that based on the gross numbers, the sales tax should be. And then it was the client's uh, or the taxpayer's problem, basically, to prove that the state was wrong instead of the other way around. And it can be very expensive, especially if you were doing it on your own without software or the help of a professional trying to sort through the data and say, okay, this was a taxable sale. This was not. I mean, there's hardly a week that goes by where there isn't a case reported in the tax press about some state winning a court case over a business who couldn't refute what the state said they owed. Right. I mean, it's almost every week. I mean, and it's, it's you know, it's standard practice in a number of states. You show me your, your records and I'll show you my records. And if my records aren't as good as your records, you got to prove my records are wrong. We would occasionally run into that in the, in the audits we did when I was in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an unusual person that didn't have enough records where we could look at them and extrapolate what they, when, you know, what their sales tax returns showed and you know and get to get to a spot where we wouldn't have to impose an outside number on them it's it's really a, it's a it's a it's bad press when you impose a, a number on a taxpayer and, and when they have at least some attempt at maintaining records right so how do businesses protect themselves well first you start with good advice you have somebody come in and and it, it it actually is worth the effort to pay 
you know, an accountant or an attorney to come in and look at your process um, and give you advice on how to strengthen your process. So the process is what saves some people. This was, frankly, is what saves people. Having records, you've got to have something in your to document what you've done, and it has to be in a in a format that you can easily access. It has to be something that is stands the test of time. I mean, you have to be able to go back three years or four years, or four and a half in Wisconsin. So you have to have a, the capacity to document the past. And it really helps if you have long-term relationships with your customers. Mm-hmm. So if something happens and you don't have an exemption certificate for a customer, you know they're still there and they they like you and they're willing to you know give you a new exemption certificate. It's sad to you know, to encounter a taxpayer who didn't get an exemption certificate from somebody who then subsequently went out of business or died. Right. You know because you know states don't I don't say states don't care states can't be flexible at that point in this process. So process is first. Good advice and a process that's repeatable and stands the test of time. So once you've established the process, does that make the rest easier? You know, in a lot of ways it does. You know, if you're if you if you're consistently collecting an exemption certificate from your customers and you have a way of storing those certificates so that you can retrieve them. The ability to withstand the sales tax side of a sales tax audit is immensely easier. I mean, states are looking, I mean, the sales tax side of a sales and use tax audit is sales which you didn't charge tax on. And the overwhelming reason why folks fail that is they just have nothing. They've got no support whatsoever. They have no piece of paper. They've got no records whatsoever to to give to an auditor that gives that auditor a reason to say, oh, I got it. Very good. And on the use tax side of it, you know, the, the you know, roughly 80% of the money gets collected in the sales and use tax audit is use tax. In theory, that should go down and should be going down with Wayfair as more people are collecting. You know, the, re- the, re- the reality is we're not probably at that stage of this process yet. Right. You have to give an auditor at least the impression that you're looking at your invoice, your purchase invoice, and you're you're trying to understand why that person didn't charge you sales tax. Right. Now maybe you're you might get lucky in your manufacturer, and you can stay with straight stay with a straight face. You know, I didn't know that wasn't a piece of exemption, or that, that manufacturing equipment wasn't exempt. You know, <laughs> it usually won't work, but you can at least stay with a straight face. Um, sure. But you know, after that, it's really a function of in a normal store audit, charging the right rate is almost always easy because you know what the rate is. Mm-hmm. I mean, convenience a convenience store is one of the most difficult businesses on the planet because they sell everything that's subject to multiple rates in the state. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you sell shoes, you ought to be able to get this right. Where right. you're gonna get it where you struggle, yep, where you struggle is one that purchases as you make where people don't charge you tax. And on the folks who come in and buy things exempt. Now, that doesn't probably happen very often in a shoe store, but it happens in grocery stores and other kind of stores all the time. Right. If someone's listening right now and they're panicking a little because they're thinking they have online sales, they don't know if 
they have been reporting correctly. You know, it, it takes a lot to call up an attorney and accountant and say, I'm not sure. But what's another way that they can kind of maybe move towards compliance short of, you know, calling revenue and saying, I'm not sure. Are there ways that or resources that they can look to to see if, if they're doing the right thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, advertise us, but, you know, our website has a pretty good uh, collection of information on what states are doing and all of our competitors do. And there's a lot of places that really are, you know, the A, frankly, the AICPA has an amazing website where they're tracking all this stuff. Where it gets a lot more complicated is in understanding what's taxable. Mm-hmm. A, you have to figure out where you're making sales. So you got to sort your sales by state. And then you have to have, I mean, get a spreadsheet, you know, put 45 states plus the District of Columbia on the first column and and your sales into that into that state and in the DC in the next column. And then there are thresholds in the third column. And you can get the thresholds on, you know, there's, there's probably 50 websites out there where you can get the state economic nexus what thresholds. And then you just compare them and you look, okay, so in 2019, you do this for last year, do 2019 first. So, okay, I exceeded economic nexus threshold in these 12 states. I'm not collecting any of those 12 states. And then you've got to figure out. Is the thing that you're selling there taxable? If it's tangible personal property, you got a pretty good shot that it's taxable because mm-hmm. every state taxes tangible personal property in general. You know, they have, there's lots of different exemptions, which makes it complicated. There's lots of, of things that one would assume are taxable but in, that might not be. Right. And then you have to figure out, because that is really what's it's important. I mean, you know, South Dakota has gross sales. So from their perspective, you know, 100% of the sales you make in that state are are the threshold. And, you know, an awful lot of the states use gross. An awful lot of them say, I just, Texas, for example, I just read their economic nexus statute last week. Every sale that you make into Texas has to be counted in the threshold. So that's a state where it doesn't make any difference what you're selling. Okay. Whatever you're selling counts in the threshold. Now. Then you figure out, okay, so I've exceeded $500,000 in sales in Texas. I'm selling whatever, and they count whatever. I know that I have at least an obligation to get a sales tax license. Then you have to figure out what part of whatever they actually tax. And so you could end up having a situation where you have an obligation to have a sales tax license. But because of what you sell or who you sell to, you don't really collect any tax. And that's where the, you know, a lot of the complexity comes with this because even if you sold something, once you have the sales tax license, the all the other rules that go along with sales tax compliance get to be enforced on you. So that's when you have an obligation to collect exemption certificates. And so if you're selling something that is being purchased by someone who's exempt because how they use it, well, farmers. So you sell stuff to farmers in Texas. Well, so you see the economic, it's, it's normally taxable stuff. If somebody other than a farmer bought it, you'd have to collect sales tax. You only sell to farmers. And you know, if I get audited, I have to prove that that was a farmer. Now, the farmer may have to prove that he or she used it for an exempt purpose, but I at least have to prove that I sold it to a farmer. Right. And so you have to have, you know, the, the Texas Agricultural Exemption Certificate 
And it has to be complete enough that I can give it to the auditor and say, if you think they lied, call them. I have no idea. I mean, so at the bare minimum, once you've gotten past the sorting your sales by state, figuring out what their their thresholds are, and determine whether or not it's taxable sales, retail sales, or gross sales that they use, and then you get to that spot where, okay, I've got, I sell in 12 states, and I, I've exceeded the economic nexus world in 12 states. They all happen to be gross sales states, so I've, you know, I've got to, I've got to get a license. Now that I've got a license, do I actually have to collect any tax at all? It's I, not for the faint of heart. I was going to say, I think once you kind of uh, parse through all of this, the listeners will begin to understand that this is why it's so complicated. I think, again, I think sometimes we hear online sales tax and we think, oh, it's just a difference of, you know, what's the difference in the rate between Jersey and, and Pennsylvania? There's so much that goes into this, you know, formula. It's crazy. We could talk about the definition of formal wear in Pennsylvania. Oh, the, Pennsylvania has all kinds of uh, wacky laws. And actually, you know, a lot of a lot of states do in terms of, you know, is is the donut, is it dining or is it, you know, is takeout different? Does it matter if it's heated? I mean, there's so there's so much nuance. And in Pennsylvania, we, I actually used to work in a um, I worked in a, a major retail chain um, through law school and clothes are generally exempt. Uh, clothing is generally exempt in Pennsylvania, which was really different from North Carolina, where I come from, where almost everything is taxed. And um, but accessories are not. And we would have to figure out what was considered clothing versus what would be considered an accessory. And what you would think in your head is the difference was not always the difference. And um, we had a, a rule of thumb at the store that literally just came down from the manager because she was kind of at our wit's end. And this was a few years ago before some of the more sophisticated uh, software existed. But our rule of thumb was if it was mostly soft, we considered it clothing. If it was hard, like a headband, we would consider it an accessory because it was so just trying to sort out those rules was so complicated. That's not a bad test. It's a pretty you know, good because, test. You know, looking back, I, I'm, I'm impressed. But at the time, I can tell you, like, trying to explain it to a customer was really uh, hard. Because if they came in and they had $20 and they picked up something that was $19.99 and you said, oh, there's tax on it. And they explained to you that there can't possibly be tax because there's no tax on clothes in Pennsylvania. And you're trying to explain to them that that barrette is, uh, you know, not clothing. And your only explanation is because it's hard. <laughs> as opposed to soft, <laughs> you know, they're not always, they weren't always real happy with that, uh, with that explanation. They're going to think you made that up. And oh, I know. You, you feel like you are when you're talking. You're like, I don't know. It, uh, it, it's not soft. Therefore, we have to charge you sales tax. You said there, there's two dozen different areas where that same kind of analysis has to be done. And often it's done on the fly. Mm -hmm. Actually, when you were talking about the, the farming um, exceptions, I was thinking back, I think it was Iowa, but I could be wrong where there was the, um, an infamous case a few years back about whether or not pumpkins were taxable. And if you had to prove that if you were buying the pumpkin for food, it was exempt from tax. But if you were buying the same pumpkin to use as a decoration, 
for fall, it was subject to sales tax. And so there were, you know, vendors on the street trying to sort out whether, you know, what are you going to make people promise you that they're taking that pumpkin home to eat it is crazy. And then if you, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, you extrapolate that to online when all the different variations for what is the use of something and how can you even know what the customer is using it for? It becomes even more complicated. It's absolutely right. Yeah, that, that the pumpkin thing happened when I was uh, executive director of Streamline and Iowa was a streamlined state. And so this all of this, you know, started coming into my office and I'm thinking, really, Iowa? Really? <laughs> I have to I have to you're one of my paid dues paying members and I have to defend your decision to tax pumpkins that are gonna be carved. Yeah. No, no, you're gonna you're gonna change Iowa and they and they did change. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um so, so I'm going to ask you now the impossible question kind of as the wrap up. So nobody has a crystal ball, but if you and I were having this discussion at the same time next year, instead of this year, what, if anything, do you think would be different? And again, I know it's, it's impossible to, to say with certainty, but if you had to speculate what might be different or what might be something that we would be talking about next year, as opposed to now, what would you think that might be? Uh, I think we're going to see more tax policy stuff next year. You know, actually, this year there wasn't much policy stuff. You know, the state when when most states legislators started in January and February, their budgets were just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit, and their legislatures went home. Right. And so they've you know they've spent the last four months trying to figure out how they can deal with you know just keeping the lights on. And not wanting to raise taxes, right? Uh, so next year they're, you know, in, you know, knock on wood, we're all back to work, and they still have crappy budgets, but they're going to need to figure out how to get more money in the in the, and that's going to include some policy stuff, right? We're going to see people expand their sales tax to, you know, to some services, uh, you know, most likely the you know the simple, easy ones to tax like dry cleaning and you know car repair. Um, I don't, I, I don't expect Maryland to expand their sales tax to accountants uh, like they've talked to or like they've talked about. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing, you know, dry cleaning is a relatively simple thing to tax, and there's an awful lot of states that don't tax it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm expecting that kind of conversation next year. Yeah, I could see that because I know, like in Pennsylvania, since you mentioned uh, Maryland with the accountants. Uh, Pennsylvania, they tried to tax legal services a few years back, and I know that the uh, the bar was opposed to it. But I I can see where again that feels like the kind of tax that someone could sneak in and not feel like they're raising taxes. You know, you would think that there would be a a positive public reaction to imposing tax on lawyers and accounts. <laughs> um, there really isn't <laughs> because, you know, so, I mean, well, because the, the, the cost goes to the consumer, right? So, that's right. you know, you want to, you yes. want to say that you're taxing the lawyer, but you're taxing the consumer. You're not taxing so, the lawyer. That's right. You're, you're yeah. taxing your aunt for having to do with the will. Right. Um, so, I mean, we tax in, when I was a South Dakota taxes lawyers and accountants on their sales tax. Oh, do they? And, oh yes. Um, and, you know, they did it in 19, they started in 1965. I mean, there's hardly anybody alive that even remembers why they did it. And, um, you know, there's, but we're now probably in our third generation of lawyers and accountants who, 
you know, grew up knowing they had flex sales tax. Mm-hmm. So the complexity is, you know, has long since gone away. Right. Um, I'm guessing that in 1966, that was a pretty unpleasant time to work for the Department of Revenue in South Dakota. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If folks um, wanted to find you um, or Avalara on social media or on the web, where should they look? www.avalara.com. Mm-hmm. And we're also on Twitter, but I write up handle don't know what our Twitter handle is. And we're on Facebook. Awesome. So you can find us on any of those three spots, scott.peterson at avalara.com. I'm happy to chat with folks. I mean, this, this is an interesting time we all live in. And, and Agreed. I, and, you know, if people had stopped dying, I think there'd be a lot of people say, man, this is a really interesting experiment. Unfortunately, it's not an experiment. Right. Yeah. No, it's, um, I think it's changing, you know, it's, it's changing the way we do business. It's changing the way we think about online services and what we're willing to put online in a way that we weren't before. I mean, I just went to the school today to uh, introduce my, my kid to his teachers that he actually won't be seeing in person for some time, but because uh, they're going online, you know, so even, even uh, schools are online now and, and colleges. And I, I think a lot of the world is changing a lot faster than we thought it would, you know, even six months ago. So <laughs> interesting yeah, times was, for sure. So again, yeah, there was a time when home, homeschooling meant something entirely different than this. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're I'm welcome. Gonna make sure I put those um, links uh, to those social and the websites on the um, show notes for folks who want to get in touch. And again, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at TaxGirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.